Thank you for your practice. Welcome to anyone who was not here uh, when we first started and I had a opportunity to welcome folks and say hi. As I mentioned at the beginning of our time together, um, we'll explore equanimity a little bit more tonight. This is the fourth talk on equanimity over the past uh, several weeks. And the first three talks, if anyone doesn't know, and you're interested in them can be found on chriscrotty.podbean.com and you can link to that at the bottom of BMC's homepage. Also the final talk on equanimity will be on June 10 and I'm pointing that out uh, because the date of this final talk has changed from its uh, original date. I'm going to start tonight by talking about samsara. I've always seen the Buddhist tradition as embodying, I guess what to me is a certain type of humility and honesty about the human experience. I think some of you have heard me talk more at length about this, particularly my early years in my late teens and early 20s, when this particular aspect of the Dharma um, began to normalize something within me and began to present a path forward that felt sane, um, logical, real. Over the past many years, um, particularly as I began to teach more, I have come to nearly recommend that these qualities, uh, along with vulnerability, uh, be cultivated alongside more traditional attributes found in Buddhist literature. Taken together, the invitation and permission to equate the search for wisdom with humility, honesty, specifically in the form of transparency, I think both to ourselves and also to those we trust, to our community, and vulnerability offers, offers a reliable, a very reliable form of freedom from artifice and posturing. And while that might not be the ultimate freedom that the Buddha taught. The argument I'm making is it is a foundation for the ultimate freedom that the Buddha taught. Uh, 
And it's one that we develop particularly in the context of relationship and community. We can be ourselves. For anyone who has reached this stage, temporarily or permanently, uh, you know it is often a tremendous relief. It is a relief that comes with its own insight, uh, which is basically a better understanding of how of how we can consume a lot of mental energy, a lot of mental time, depriving ourselves of an authenticity that can free us from the labors of selfing. In the Buddhist tradition, it is said that pain is an inherent part of human life. And even for those of us who are attracted to the Dharma, even for those of us who have been coming around for a long time, if we're looking closely, if we're watching our own experience, and if we're honest, um, we find that often we have a hard time integrating this, uh, what in the tradition is considered a universal law or truth. Learning about Buddhism and learning how to meditate uh, do not eliminate pain. The Buddhist tradition also says, however, that there is something beyond pain, uh, which it calls dukkha. Uh, D-U-K-K-H-A, dukkha. Dukkha results from the way we respond to the normal and expected pain of life. So we have the pain of life. And we have dukkha. While pain is not going away, and I think this is a very important point, pain is not going away. And Buddhism is not, Dharma practice is not trying to make pain go away. Dukkha is something that we create, that you and I create in our own mind, and therefore it can be alleviated. That's the whole premise of this tradition. It can be alleviated, it can be transcended. It can go away. Pain can't go away. Dukkha can go away. Temporarily and perhaps more permanently. In certain places in the Pali Canon, this uh, transcending of dukkha is referred to as having gone beyond. Having gone beyond. However, most of us live fully immersed in dukkha much of the time. Another thing to be honest about while at the same time allowing that honesty to come forward in our lives in a way that's not pessimistic, in a way in which we begin to understand it as part of a kind of spiritual optimism that begins with seeing clearly, honesty, honestly, vulnerably, authentically. 
So we're immersed in dukkha most of the time. This way of uh, living, this way of being in the world, this, this place, this space is referred to in the Buddhist tradition as samsara. S-A-M-S-A-R-A, samsara. Samsara is used to define a cyclical cause and effect relationship between humans and the phenomenal world, between us and everything that happens around us, to us, inside ourselves, our own mind, our heart. We respond to inner and outer experiences, um, situations, people, feelings, experiences that we have, in a way that makes those conditions more problematic than they need to be. Remember, those situations, those people, those feelings, those experiences are not going away, right? Those are um, ways of talking about the pain of life. So when things are hard, we somehow make them more difficult. Sometimes even when things are not really that hard, uh, we tend to inflate them in a way that renders them sometimes overwhelming. Uh, Or at the very least, we find ourselves struggling to maintain whatever balance of mind we have, sometimes because we don't often have it, so it it seems very precious. Uh, We're afraid that it's not going to last very long. Sometimes when things are going uh, really well, we grip too tightly, only to realize that in our effort to keep things from changing, the very thing that brought us joy is now tied up in yet another experience of dukkha. And sometimes things are difficult enough that we feel our whole life has become uh, unwieldy. We are concerned. We grow concerned. Uh, Sometimes we use words like anxiety and stress. We grow concerned that we can't control our life. Um, Because partly, partly because we are not able to keep in mind that life is not to be controlled. In this moment. meaning that we are working to create better conditions for ourselves and others. And in this moment, life is not to be controlled. We're not supposed to be manipulating anything. It's the manipulation that causes dukkha that keeps us stuck in this cycle, cycle of dukkha called samsara. Sometimes when uh, people are really suffering, suffering a lot, I remind them, uh, and you know, you've heard me, many of you have heard me say this before, to try to get a, a, a point across. We are all human beings having a human experience. Never does this seem more true than we are suffering, or never is it... Uh, more relevant. 
This frame of view, a human being having a human experience, is intended specifically to offset our habits of rejecting what we are experiencing. Craving for another existence and blaming ourselves for the situation we're in or blaming someone else. This is to say that the ups and downs that we experience in our life, the very real limitations that we do have and our pain are not building a case on behalf of our inadequacy or ineptitude. We are a human being having a human experience consisting of dukkha in this space called samsara. These situations of pain and discomfort and disconnect are not building a case on behalf of our inadequacy or ineptitude. They are merely highlighting our humanity. We are all human beings having a human experience. Equanimity as a teaching, upekka, equanimity, upekka. Upekka as a teaching to be contemplated. A meditation practice to be explored. And a mind state to be cultivated. Is central in transforming our relationship to both dukkha and samsara. So this now begins to get into the wisdom dimension of equanimity. Equanimity is seeing nature in its varied forms. And by that I mean the nature of how things work, universal laws or principles. The nature of change, the nature of the mind, the nature of karma, cause and effect. The nature of reactivity the nature of impermanence. Equanimity both, I think we could say, arises from and is expressed as the understanding that nature, the world, our life, our own mind, has many, many, many aspects, some more likable than others many of them unlikable, not preferred, not preferred. And by nature, I mean the universe left to its ways without us tinkering with it in this moment. And then we go off and do the work of considering, reflecting on, talking about, working together to make the universe, if that word includes our relationships, communities, institutions, governing structures, um, we go off to do the work of making them more equitable, um, higher functioning 
on behalf of the goals of well-being for all beings. In this moment, we don't tinker. To see the natural is to see the inevitable. Ultimately, it is to see dukkha, to see samsara, to see impermanence. It is to see the self's relationship to the many fluxes of life. So I want to underscore something here, even if it risks sounding very obvious. It's a introduction to Buddhism teaching, and it's one of the highest realizations at the same time. If equanimity is a view, a way of understanding things, a way of seeing, it is one that recognizes two important things. One, samsara is the world we live in much of the time. And two, samsara is comprised of dukkha. Why point this out again? Well, samsara is not supposed to work, as Venerable Varanani said recently in an interview. But we forget this. And we fight against this. We reject this truth. Samsara is not fair. Samsara is not equitable. Samsara is not a place where our preferences are met. Samsara is not a place where things go our way. And samsara is the way it is. Until it isn't. The world is not as we want it to be as long as we keep rejecting these truths. Rather, when we see things this way and are no longer living within the delusion that we are going to make these truths go away, something rests inside us. Something opens. Something expands. We are more available to a wider range of life and experiences. The mind becomes less restless and less anxious and it grows more stable. Eventually, the mind reveals a different side of itself. Balance and stability, contentment, joy, happiness. Equanimity is uh, it's both a cause and a result of well-being. It is something we practice and something we receive and experience. There's a Zen saying attributed to the third Zen ancestor, quote, when attachment and aversion are both absent, the way is clear and undisguised, end quote. This was essentially the meditation instructions tonight, right? I I pointed out that we meditate to stop trying to create a different reality for ourselves and to disrupt the process of pushing away the way things are.
and suggested that that uh, also could inform us as to how to practice, how to meditate, what meditation is. Practicing this way is to practice anatta, not self. Anatta. Because it is the self that pushes away and grasps. It is grasping an aversion that established the self, forever wanting and not wanting, approving and disapproving. In this perspective, we begin to see the relationship between equanimity and wisdom more clearly. The neither wanting nor not wanting in this moment attitude of equanimity is central to the, to the development of the awakening factors, sometimes often <clears throat> referred to as the seven factors of awakening because there are seven of them, always, almost always listed in the same order and taught as uh, a developmental track. And... In my experience, sometimes the track doesn't necessarily go in this exact order. Number one, mindfulness. Number two, investigation. Number three, effort. Number four, joy. Number five, tranquility. Number six, concentration. And number seven is equanimity. Something is being pointed toward, I think, not only in this teaching, but in several teachings that, in, in many teachings that show a, 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 um, a developmental arc of the mind going from acute dukkha to freedom. Um, there's this sense that if we create the right conditions, Maybe we organize our life around the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Um, we're hearing the teachings, connecting with teachers, uh, immersing ourselves in Sangha. So there's a lot of like-minded momentum and energy and hopefully support. And we're practicing, we're doing, you know, we're, we're applying the Dharma, what the Buddha taught. Uh, over time, um, the effort we put, put in begins to create small shifts and we recognize them as the benefits of practice and that motivates us to spend more time in this way. So there's this sense that um, what we're looking for, even if we have different goals, there's a sense of what we're looking for is attainable, attainable by all, should be available to all, the Buddha taught. in that its development is natural. It will happen. Even if it hasn't happened yet, even if it's a long path, even if it's a gradual path. And there's a, there's a, a, a passage, it's, it's a long passage, and I'm gonna take the time to read it, um, that we could translate, <clears throat> if we gave it a title, as progress is natural, progress is natural. And I wanna read that to you. And you'll see all sorts of um, 
important Dharma teachings teachings woven into this. For one who is virtuous and endowed with virtue, there is no need for an act of ill will. No need for an act of ill will. May non-remorse arise in me. It is natural, practitioners, that non-remorse will arise in one who is virtuous. It is a natural law. For one free of remorse, there is no need for an act of will, quote, may gladness arise in me, end quote. It, it is natural, practitioners, that gladness will arise in one who is free from remorse. For one who is glad of heart, there is no need for an act of will, quote, may joy arise in me, end quote. It is natural that joy will arise in one who is glad at heart. For one who is joyful, there is no need for an act of will, quote, may my body be serene, end quote. It is natural that the body will be serene for one who is joyful. Meaning, but this, this statement, there is no need for an act of will, is referring to the idea that we just need to follow the instructions and create the right conditions, support each other, do our practice, hear the Dharma, and trust that over time, with continuity of practice, that there will be a natural emerging of these more beneficial mind states. We don't have to try so hard. We don't have to push. For one of serene body, there is no need for an act of will, quote, may I, fu- may I feel happiness, end quote. It is natural that one will be happy whose body is serene. For one who is happy, there is no need for an act of ill will, quote, may my mind be concentrated, end quote. It is natural for one whose mind is happy that they will be concentrated. For one who is concentrated, the mind is concentrated. There is no need for an act of will, quote, may I know and see things as they really are, end quote. It is natural for one with a concentrated mind to see things as they really are. For one who knows and sees things as they really are, there is no need for an act of ill will. Quote, may I experience revulsion and dispassion. It is natural for one who knows and sees things as they are, as they really are, to experience revulsion and dispassion. For one who experiences revulsion and dispassion, there is no need for an act of will. Quote, may I realize the knowledge and vision of liberation. It is natural for one who experiences revulsion and dispassion to realize the knowledge and vision of liberation. To renounce revulsion and dispassion is just to stop tinkering with things as they are. Thus, practitioners, the preceding qualities flow into the succeeding qualities. The succeeding qualities bring the preceding qualities to perfection for going from the near shore to the far shore. Going to the near shore, going from the near shore to the far shore suggests that while we 
have to make space for dukkha and samsara in our life, meeting it with curiosity rather than aversion, uh, this non-reactivity amounts to a skill. And that, that skill naturally plays a role in taking us to the other shore, a place where we find relief from dukkha. The other shore is not samsara. It is nirodha, it is nibbana, the place we find ourselves when we have gone beyond, gone beyond the trappings of our conditioning. And I'll close with a short passage from Joseph Goldstein. We know the truth of change, not only as a conceptual understanding, but in the direct experience of things arising and passing away. Sometimes this experience of impermanence is on a macro level, and then increasingly on a momentary micro level. At this point, our meditation is less involved with what it, what it is that's arising than with the process of change itself. We experience the truth of dukkha, the unreliability and unsatisfying nature of conditioned phenomena. We see the continual disillusion of everything that arises and, at times, even the momentary disillusion of consciousness itself. What would it be like if we really let this teaching in? If our understanding of it were complete, we wouldn't hold on to anything. It reminds me of the notion from the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Don't cling to anything in the world. Don't cling to anything in the world. <laughs> 